Hello, welcome to Season 2 of the Wildlife Heroes podcast from the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. I'm Gretchen Miller, and in this series, we're looking at one animal at a time, the role of wildlife rehabilitation in conservation. Now, Australia has 35 species of birds of prey. There are 24 diurnal raptors and 11 owls. 13 of all of these are threatened. Some see these birds as pest species preying on pets and livestock. Others regard those soaring forms as symbolic of freedom and representative of Australia's extraordinary biodiversity. Without question, the raptor species are critical in Australia's ecology. Veterinarian and National Parks and Wildlife Service Project Officer Dr Aditi Shriram is with the park's biodiversity and wildlife team. And she and I are bringing you with us on a visit to a remarkable person and her charges. Can I get you something? No, I'm fine. Are you sure? I've been sipping tea all the way down. Okay. I have herbal teas. Peggy McDonald runs Higher Ground, the most significant raptor rehabilitation centre in Australia. And before we start our conversation, let's go and have a quick peek in one of Peggy's sizeable aviaries tucked away out of sight of the house. You wouldn't know they're there. On another glorious day in the Southern Highlands. So we're walking through a series of various sized aviaries that are mostly kind of enclosed, I mean they're with with mesh. Is that to keep the birds calm? It's more to protect their feathers. It's one of the things that we do to prevent feather damage. For a long time shade cloth has been used for that purpose. So can you tell me what we're looking at or tell the listener what we're looking at here? We're looking at two wedge-tailed eagles over there. We're looking at an adult and a juvenile white-bellied sea eagle up there. We're looking at another wedgie down here and behind the pavilion will be another wedgie and a white-bellied sea eagle, a juvenile. And what are we actually standing in? This is the first of the free flight aviaries, so it's a circular construction with a central pavilion that it stops the birds of prey from seeing an endpoint when they're flying, so it encourages them to do as best they can with natural flight in here. And as we were talking about earlier, the peregrines will just zip around. I've, I've clocked them doing 10 kilometres at 70 kilometres an hour. You have to actually do it on a day when you can see a shadow going past you because I can only watch them for three laps before I just about pass out. It's just, they're just so fast and they're about like that far away from the edge of the shade cloth. We wander out into the back garden accompanied by Peggy's three whippets. That is Rocket uh-huh. and this is Eddie. Eddie's and we sit on the grass looking out over a dam and the forest in which those aviaries and their magnificent inhabitants sit. And I start by asking Aditi how many raptor species are rescued in Australia each year. 
So a lot of the data we have is collected by the volunteer wildlife rehab sector and we've got data from about 2014 to 18 and um, with the more recent years still being processed but what that data tells us is that over that time period around 6,250 raptors have been rescued and that includes 30 species and 11 threatened species. Wow, 30 species, okay. So 11 threatened species turning up being rescued. What proportion of these birds are actually being released by the sector? So as with most wildlife that comes in, um, generally we find compared to the numbers that are rescued, only a small percentage are able to be released. And that's due to the reasons that they come into care, which are generally trauma or severe reasons that result in them not being releasable. But for birds in particular, for birds of prey, around 25% of the birds that are first rescued are able to be rehabilitated and released back to the wild. I think 25% is pretty amazing, actually. I don't. You don't, no. Peg? Yeah. I think that we could be doing a lot better. I think that we should be doing a lot better. And we have a release rate of about 60% here, between 60 and 70% of the birds of prey that come into care. And that's not because I'm any sort of whiz-bang magician. It's because I try really hard to use practices that I've learned in some of the best centres overseas and there's absolutely no reason why those practices can't be translated to what we're doing here in Australia and particularly New South Wales. I think that rehabbers aren't trained well enough up to overseas standards and I think that a lot of vets aren't trained as far as raptor assessment goes. I'm just really lucky that I have a vet that I work very closely with and I took three birds in there to him on Sunday. We do full biochemistry, haematology, we do full body x-rays, we check eyes, we check throats, we do full body checks and that's crucial I mean, two of the birds that I took in on Sunday had been in, in previous care longer term and both of them have turned up issues that perhaps would have been better dealt with when they first came into care. So it's really, it's not anyone's fault, it's just creating an awareness that we can and do need to do better. Would you agree with that, Dee? Yeah, absolutely. And I think raptors are, birds of prey are a very specialised group of animals. They're specialised in their, in their ecology, they're specialised in their behaviour. And the, the primary reason why they require very best practice, up-to-date rehabilitation is because to be releasable, they need to be physically fit, basically back to 100%. Um, and that isn't always possible, it takes a lot of investment, time, knowledge and experience. And also infrastructure to some degree. So it sounds like the relationship between the carer and the vet is absolutely critical. We're really lucky that we have lots of raptor specialist vets, guys that only do raptors, guys and ladies, that only do raptors overseas. And we're able to call on their knowledge as well. Charlie and I, Charlie, my vet, and I have a brilliant database that we can put x-rays on and Dave Scott in Carolina can look at them within seconds of us putting them on there. So, yeah, it's, it's all achievable. And the thing is... It needs to be achieved because otherwise we're just doing half a job. So how many, how many birds do you have in care at the moment? <laughs> I need my database. I think they're about 15. 
And how long might you have an individual bird? It varies. I was really surprised to discover on my Churchill Fellowship that especially at the Gabbett Raptor Centre at Minnesota University, they will keep eagles going for two, three, four years if that's what it takes to get that bird fit again. And they release them and they track them and they do absolutely fine. So I can have them in anything from probably a minimum of a week because other things can develop over time when a bird first comes into care. So a week up to a couple of years. And I will keep going as long as there is light at the end of the tunnel and I have veterinary backup, I will keep going for as long as that bird needs. I get about 70 raptors a year, which might not sound like a lot, but that sort of averages out at a a bit over one a week. And as they start to build up, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But like I said, if you're not doing it properly, it's probably better, this will be a strong statement, but it's probably better not to do it for the bird's sake. Pass it on to other people who can do it. The day will come when we're all working much better together as a sector, Mm -hmm. I believe, and that day needs to come. So more people are becoming aware that, yeah, we can improve things for these birds. And they're an umbrella of species. They play a vital role in biodiversity. They're called the canaries of the sky. I've read that somewhere. But they really are, and they're very precious, and more and more and more of them are starting to be classified as species that are in trouble. I actually think it's something like 30% of our raptors are now classified. It might even be more than that. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's, um, it's important to have that understanding and have those relationships and have networks that you can learn from and help support you. And that relates to vets as well. Um, Vets are running businesses, they're attending to clients and a lot of them would be happy to donate their time but it's important to build those relationships with your local veterinarian, get an understanding of what your requirements are, what their abilities are, understand your limitations and build on that relationship to achieve Mm. a good result for, for the animal. Aditi, you're actually working on the New South Wales Volunteer Wildlife Rehabilitation Strategy and you're focusing on improving standards of care and training in the sector. So what does that mean for you? What are you looking at as your key things to achieve there? So there's a bit of work in this field undertaken by my team and myself. So firstly, there's the code of practice. There's quite a few codes of practice, and these set out the minimum standards and guidelines for rescue, rehabilitation and release of native animals. The Bird of Prey Code was first developed in, and published in 2016, and Shona Lorigan, my colleague, is currently undertaking a revision of that code in collaboration with the rehabilitation sector. So there's a lot of discussions on how best to update the code to represent current best practice. So what does that actually mean in practice for rehabilitators? So the code sets out standards and guidelines. So when you get a bird of prey in, it tells you, you know, what size the enclosure must be if you're housing the bird for intensive care, if you're housing the bird pre-release and intermediate housing, what are appropriate rescue techniques. So it sets out standards for these, which are really useful not just for rehabilitators, but for anyone dealing with wildlife. For veterinarians, it is a useful standard on understanding euthanasia, where it's appropriate to consider euthanasia, what techniques are appropriate. So it's, yeah, essentially sets out minimum standards and helps the sector improve rehabilitation overall. In so many practical areas, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And going on from the code, the training standards are another set of resources we're developing for the sector. And these set up minimum training standards for volunteers. So the standard we want volunteers to train to so they can best apply the code of practice in their work. And who's going to be doing the training? So at the moment, a lot of the training is undertaken by experienced rehabilitators in the sector. So organisations take it upon themselves to organise training, to organise assessments for their groups and outside. And there's a few other experts in the field that deliver training. So veterinarians, scientists, ecologists. Down the line, our hope is that we can develop a system of certification for trainers. And lastly, we're also developing some guidelines for initial assessment and care of wildlife and these provide more detail to the training standards and the code of practice. So essentially what the guidelines on what you should do once you rescue wildlife until the point when that animal can be seen by an experienced wildlife rehabilitator or a veterinarian. So what does that mean for this particular sector? What kinds of things are you considering like practical on the ground matters? What needs to change there? I think Peggy might be best to answer that because she's part of that sector and she works in that space. And we, for us to determine that, we really look for feedback from the sector. We work with people that are on the ground and get an understanding of what, what needs to improve, what's happening at the moment, what are our limitations, what are the areas we need to improve on. So I think some of the things that are really easily achievable Getting better flight conditioning for these birds. These guys need to be really fit when they're released. Everything from a peregrine falcon that's the fastest bird in the world to a little kestrel that needs to be able to maintain that amazing hovering on the one spot that they do to wedgies that just need to be able to soar quietly and laconically up there in the wind currents with their amazing ability to spot things from a long way away. Each species is very different and I think that plays a huge part in our perhaps not such great success with releases because they tend to be grouped together without a lot of carers having the knowledge that this species is very different to this species is very different to this one. So it's an awareness of what these birds need to be able to do to survive once we put them back out into the wild again. So that's a critical part of what a carer does. Peggy outlines the three essential factors of what needs to happen when a bird is found that raptor rescuers and rehabilitators need to look out for. The initial what has happened to this bird and what is wrong with it. Not just you think it's got something because you think it's been hit by a car because it was found on the road. Go into it in more detail. There's often something else lurking behind. So really good veterinary work up to start off with. Then it's up to the carer to slowly track that bird through stages of rehab so that it's being fed what it would get in the wild. Peregrine falcons are bird eaters. Their, their guts are designed to metabolise avian protein. So we don't feed them rats. We don't feed the mice as a constant. We give them quails. And then we get to the end of the rehab and how fit is that bird? What can it do? Is it just going to bolt out of its box on a big dose of adrenaline and fly over the hill and drop dead? Which I sadly suspect many of the ones that I did years and years ago did now that I know more. Or will it be able to just work itself back out again in the wild and be another another hopeful 
a raptor out there thriving and surviving because that's what it's all about. It's not just surviving, it's thriving as well. Mm. When you say that about that learning, that you suspect some of your early rescues will have done that and not survived, what makes you suspect that now and how did you come to that understanding and that realisation? Well, I came to the understanding and the realisation by all the training that I've done overseas that just still is not available in Australia. I mean, we're talking about going to places like Abu Dhabi where the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital is the biggest bird of prey hospital in the world. They can see 100 birds a day. Yes, a lot of them may belong to falconers. However, that gives you a good opportunity to go, well, we'll fix this break like this and then see how the bird is in six months' time. They also have a massive wild bird program, so they're not just birds that are coming in with owners. The countries that have a history of falconry tend to have developed their veterinary practices as far as raptors go to a higher standard because the birds have had a lot of training in many cases are very expensive so those standards have been necessary to develop so we we don't have that tradition in Australia we're really just coming on board with what do we do with birds of prey when they come into care and the reason that I think a lot didn't survive is I just know they wouldn't have been fit enough I know we used to let peregrines go with a slight drop in their wing and think oh it's just a slight drop that's okay you know a lot of our training was based on just old historical one person sort of evidence which is not being said in a critical way it's just that that was all we knew that was all we had to go on 40 years ago what blah blah's always done for decades and you know everybody tries their hardest but it's time now to I think understand that we can try harder. We can get smarter Mm. with what we're doing. And that's in the carer's best interest. Nobody wants to have a bird for months and then have to put it down because they finally discover it had a broken wing and two bones are fused together or something. You know, what I've been doing, I'm doing for the birds, but I'm also doing for the carers because we don't want to do this for nothing. And who would put the birds through it for nothing, Mm. perhaps more importantly? What you're talking about and what you talked about earlier is that idea of collaboration of having a team so what I'm really interested in too is how bringing together each individual's knowledge and observation and learning can result in a whole bunch of data like Mm -hmm. Aditi's got on her lap there it seems like this knowledge that comes not just from the university the research sector but from on the ground is actually incredibly valuable I actually did medical technology and I worked in the vet clinic at Sydney Uni, so I have that scientific interest which does translate through to what I do here. You saw us doing some faecal tests. I did a crop test earlier this morning. These are all vital parts of what we do, but I guess I have that understanding of why all these individual little components are so important and they all add up to give us a picture of what is wrong with that individual bird. And your research, your self-informed research that you've travelled the world together with your Churchill Fellowship, for example, Mm. and prior to that as well, which is why you got that Churchill Fellowship. Oh, it's 
yeah, it's it's the practical experience. It's but it is valuable. But so is the observation of what they do in the wild. As I said before, mm. you have to know your species. This is a part of the success with the free flight aviaries. I know what these birds in general should be doing in the wild and I can follow what they're doing in the free flight. I wouldn't expect, say, a swamp area to whiz round and round and round like a peregrine does. So I guess when these guys are in free flight, for want of a better word, in an aviary, it's a whole new ball game. It's not like having them in a small rectangular cage or in an intensive care unit. It's very much the next step of understanding how they function, how they work. How do they look? If a peregrine's just done 10 kilometres in an aviary, what's it looking like when it's done that? Is one of its wings started to drop? You know, is it holding a leg up for some reason? There's yeah, there's a lot to it. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to the power of that individual observation that actually yeah, then yeah. contributes to the conservation effort, right? Yeah, mm. exactly. But that's our job as rehabbers. We need to be noticing. It's not pop it in a cage or a little ivory for a few weeks and then think it's better. It's way more involved than that. Is there a lot of putting it in a cage and, you know, feeding it inappropriate things and hoping it'll get better? There is no point in doing this unless we're... Again, being respectful of what other people are trying to do. But the, mm. the answer to that question is a definite yes. So, but yeah, you... I think it's about learning. It's an ever-evolving field, like all sciences. The rehabilitation of wildlife, if we look back 20, 30 years ago to what it is now, like Peggy was saying, there's a lot of learning and understanding we can take from that. But the important is that we do that with experiences or practices that may now we look back and we think look that might not have been best practice how do we learn from that how do we implement new strategies to prevent that and continue to improve the rehabilitation of wildlife and, and some of the work we're doing at national parks and wildlife service is in that effort to bring people together to have meetings to bring all the rehabilitators in New South Wales that are involved in rehabilitating birds of prey, bring them to the table and say, look, what are the minimum standards? What should we be doing to ensure the welfare of these animals? And I think that's a really important strategy to try and improve the process long term. This is a question that I'm asking all the rehabilitators that we're interviewing and it comes out of the remarkable stories that can be told out of the data that's now available to the public because we know that the public want to help. But 1,500 birds released over a four-year period, so 1,600 or so birds. It's, it actually seems like a considerable volume. We know it could be more, but it still seems like, well, that's 1,600 birds that may not have, that would not have recovered left to their own devices. But why does all the work that goes into rehabilitating each individual bird matter to you, Peg? Well, it matters on a few different levels. It matters, obviously, for the individual bird. As you said, we create most of these problems for them and I think we, we, we have a duty of care to give them the best help we can when they need it. I would like to think that every bird that I'm releasing 
that is going back out into the wild in a state to allow it to thrive and survive is another bird out there breeding. And I think that's really important from the individual bird's perspective, but it's also important. I know it, you know, it might only be one breeding pair, but it's better than none. It's just, it's adding up. It's all got to add up. And as we see more and more and more of them getting into trouble in the numbers department, I think it's really crucial. And as we take over more of their land and more of their habitat, yeah, I think whatever we can do to help is really important. Aditi, I'd like to talk about raptors' role in our biodiversity, why they're important, why it's worth it from a conservation perspective to spend all this time and money caring for a single animal. So raptors are recogni- they have a recognised role in our ecosystems. So they're predators, they're scavengers, they're flagship species, umbrella species like Peg mentioned, and they provide an important service by keeping prey numbers in check and keeping ecosystem balance, just like with a lot of different species. I think the single animal focus has two parts to it. One is obviously there's conservation value with every single animal. If you put effort into rehabilitating the animal, you get it to a point of release, that animal has a potential to contribute to that population. So from our data, we can see that with the numbers, 25% of these birds are being released back into the wild. And that is that has a potential to contribute to those populations. The other side to why each individual animal matters is from a rehabilitation perspective, it provides learning. Working at wildlife hospitals, you frequently see a lot more of what we call the common species versus threatened species. And we used to get the question, you know, why do you spend so much time on harriers or common species when you could be focusing all your resources on threatened species? And I think the importance in each individual animal, whether it's common or threatened, is that it allows you to learn and improve your skills and in order to help threatened species or other animals in the future. So I think each individual animal does matter. And of course, we know the trajectory we're on at the moment is that common species become threatened species. Mm -hmm. I'm quoting directly from Birds of Prey of Australia by Stephen Debus, third edition. And in this section on threats, conservation and the future, Steve says... Only the most abundant and adaptable species such as the black shoulder kite, black kite, brown falcon and nanking kestrel give no cause for concern at the present. However, experience in Europe or North America warns that the situation even for common species could change in the future. For instance, between the two national bird atlases 1977 to 1981 and 1998 to 2001, the reporting rates of the brown falcon and nanking kestrel declined nationally by 38 to 44 percent, which is huge, and in New South Wales by 41 to 52 percent. So, yeah, we're seeing that's a huge drop decline, yeah, yeah. tremendous decline. Mm. There's a very other important area that is pretty critical to what I'm doing here, too, and that's working with a good raptor ecologist. And in my case, I work very closely with Stephen Debus. I might get a bird in that's just a youngster and I don't know what it is. I don't know what every single one of them looks like at every single stage of their lives. Whereas somebody like Steve does and is very, very good at that. He's also the sort of person I can say, when do these birds start to migrate up north again? When do these guys start to disperse away from their parents? So that's a really vital part of doing your job as a raptor rehabber well also 
It's not just, oh, well, it's good to go now. So some really significant data has recently been released by National Parks and Wildlife Service in New South Wales that provides an unprecedented deep dive into wildlife rehab practice here in this state. And we are the only state that has this information. Aditi, if you look at that data and those data sets in relation to raptors, what are some of the statistics you might not have expected to come through? I find all the data really interesting, just having access to such a large data set collected over so many years that shows us trends and seasonal seasonal trends, species trends, um, patterns in terms of rescue encounters, fates of animals. It's such a valuable data set to learn from. One of the things that really stood out to me in terms of the birds of prey data was how many threatened species are rescued and rehabilitated. So of the 30 species that come into care, 11 of the threatened species are accounted for in that number, um, with powerful owls being the most frequently rescued threatened species. I think the data is really useful in that it provides insights into threats for these species. And as we were just discussing, that changes over time. So to capture that data every year and have a look at how that's changing over time gives us a better understanding of what the threats are um, and potentially how best we can respond to these threats to help with conservation. What are some of those threats? So the most common reasons raptors come into care, surprisingly, are categorised as unknown, which means that when these birds are rescued, it's not always readily apparent why they're injured or what the reason for their rescue. Um, It's very hard to see with a bird. There's so many feathers. You can't really poke around and explore what's going on there. And birds have a very good preservation reflex, so they're very good at hiding what's wrong with them and hiding their symptoms. I think that's important to note, although we'd like to know what the cause is with every single bird. I think having that unknown may link to further things in terms of when you look at that bird in rehab, it might give you some clues, doing postmortems or autopsies, doing more research. I think we might, down the track, get a little bit more insight into what that unknown number is. The second most common reasons raptors come into care is collisions, so um, which includes motor vehicle collisions and collisions with objects such as buildings, fences, windows. So those are probably the most common reasons raptors come into care. And how are you seeing, you know, in a preliminary way, how this data might affect raptor care as it feeds into their conservation and survival in the future? So one way is it helps inform rehabilitation practices. So for example, if we're seeing trends that raptors presenting to care are predominantly being rescued because of motor vehicle trauma, it might allow us to provide training or for rehabilitators to equip themselves to better help animals with those situations, you know, knowledge, education around how best to deal with those. The other Data around the fate of what happens to raptors also helps inform rehabilitation practices. So I think that's a really strong use of this data to understand what we're doing, is it working, how do we improve it? The other benefit of having this data is, as I mentioned, understanding the threats to these species and using this data to try and mitigate some of those threats to aid in the conservation of individual species. And so that means that this data can be used externally to national parks and externally, in fact, to the rehabilitation sector. So you might find the insurance sector getting involved. Yeah, so the data can be used by, you know, local government for planning. It's used by researchers to get a better understanding into different species and their threats and ecosystems. So it has a really wide use and, again, just highlights the value of having such a rich data set. rectangular section. The bassa. Yeah, you can peek your heads in the door if you want to see her. 
So just go to, you'll see her if you go in there, you can just peek your head in, see if she's up this end. And if she's not, she'll be over the other side. That's it. You just sit there nice and quietly for a minute for me. They are so weird. They're so they gentle, yeah. You can so go in. If she flies, we'll come back out again, but otherwise you oh, can I'm go okay. in the door. Yeah. And I can see her clearly. I'm good. You sure? Did you want to take a picture? I've got a big question, and I mean, it's a big question for you to answer. It's a small question for me to ask. <laughs> Aditi, you're writing treatment and care guidelines that provide best practice for what you should do in the first 24 hours after mm -hmm. rescuing a bird. I think that first point, from the point of rescue, all the actions matter. So from when you're picking up an injured bird. And that's one of the reasons that we're developing these guidelines. So the audience is wildlife rehabilitators, so it's not for members of the public per se, but when a wildlife rehabilitator picks up an injured bird of prey, what are the best actions that they can do in that first 24 to 48 hours to ensure the animal's welfare, to prevent further injury, and give that animal the best chance until it's able to be assessed by a veterinarian. And Peggy spoke about how important that assessment is or until they can seek advice from an experienced raptor rehabilitator. Birds in general stress very, very, very easily and will die just from stress alone. So in correct housing, being stuck somewhere that's too hot, anything like that will be another notch in their stress belt that will eventually topple them over. So it's, it's really critical that they get the right attention straight away. They may even be too unwell to see a vet, unless they've got something horrendously mm. obvious wrong with them, but they may be too unwell to see a vet in the first 24 hours because that just might be the stress that is the end of them. So that last, that, you know, that bit of transport that yeah, takes them to the vet, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, and the examination. And so you have to be able to judge, does this bird need to be euthanised straight away? Does it have something that I really need the vet to look at straight away? Or can I just stabilise it? And sometimes that's our job as rehabbers, just to get them stable enough for that trip to the vet. So the other thing is, and, and I'm not suggesting that members of the public pick birds of prey up. They can look like they're very unwell and be lying by the side of the road, but they will use every last bit of adrenaline and strength that they've got to defend themselves and if that means a peregrine is going to see you approach you'll go down to gently pick it up and it will suddenly flip onto its back and launch itself talons up at your face which is what they will do. I don't like seeing birds totally wrapped up. To a bird pressure on its back is a predator and it's another stress notch. So it's possible to scoop them up with maybe a jumper, maybe a towel, maybe something like that that you've got in your car. The best thing is to put them into a cardboard box with some other form of material on the bottom. Just keep them warm and dark and quiet, not hot, warm, dark and quiet. Darkness will calm a bird of prey down fairly well instantaneously. It's why falconers use hoods. You put the hoods on, you feel them just go, oh, 
they just go into like a meditative state. I'm not suggesting people put things over their head, but just into the box so that they are dark. Quiet is the next one. Don't keep looking at them every five minutes to see if they're still alive. Don't put them in the lounge room where the kids are playing and the dog's barking or the cat sniffing at the box. Put them right away from everyone and call one of the wildlife care groups. So, But just be careful yourself first up you know if the bird's in the middle of the road watch the traffic watch Mm. watch everything that's going on personnel safety is key so Mm. if you feel confident you have the experience to rescue and handle the bird then you can take those steps but if you don't it's absolutely fine to just get on the phone speak to a wildlife rehabilitation organization describe the situation um, get an idea of where you are provide them with location details and get best advice on what to do because as Peggy says although birds may seem quite unwell severely injured they do want to protect themselves and we want to prevent injury Um, and it is hard to provide blanket advice of what you should do with a bird of prey because they're all very different and I guess that's where yeah exactly and that's where my hesitation was in saying look you should do x y or z but I think those principles of warm quiet dark key to all wildlife species if you can just provide them as peggy says with a quiet dark space where they don't feel threatened that will do until you can seek further advice and i think another thing you can do as well is to maybe put something like a washing basket over the bird and then put a blanket over that and then your effect containing it and keeping it quiet at the same time but one of the critical things with raptors is their plumage their feathers we don't want those getting damaged when they come into care these guys need to have perfect plumage when they're released otherwise they can't do these beautiful aerial acrobatics that they need to be able to perform to survive it's something like if they miss one in five or one in three strikes, it weakens them so much. They've used up so much energy to do that that they're really starting to get into trouble then. So, and every feather is critical. I've got amazingly beautiful photos of wedge-tailed eagles feathers furling as they're flying around in the aviary. And you see every feather plays a part. Owls have to have silent flight. So if they've got a few raggy feathers on their wing, they can't fly silently. They won't be able to hunt effectively. So we really do try and maintain excellent plumage when we're not only rescuing but when they're in rehab. Aditi, as you've said before, the fact is rehabilitating raptors, what you've taken on, Peggy, is perhaps one of the hardest kinds of rehab. What's the primary difference between caring for a mammal and a raptor? Should you bond with a raptor, for example? Bonding is a term that that can be expanded to cover areas that encompass humanising, which no, you definitely should not do. We want every bird of prey that we release to be wary of humans. And in worst case, it covers imprinting, which is when generally happens when the bird's very young and the bird just turns into something that's like a cross between a bird and a human. It's it's actually really sad. They don't get that they're a bird. 
They have half of us in their brains and half of their instincts. Is that a good way to describe it, Dee? Yeah. yeah. Basically, they just lose their natural behaviours yeah. and because what they're exposed to is people and they might be with chicks especially, nestlings. They're fed by people. They associate people with food, with safety, with comfort. And that generally deems a bird unreleasable if they're imprinted. And it's a danger to release those birds because not only are they not going to be able to survive because they don't have natural instincts or natural behaviours to be able to fend for themselves, they might approach humans, which is obviously not what we'd want from a wild bird of prey. But as far as bonding goes, what I always do is just try and develop some kind of relationship with the birds in intensive care. I may need to, say, have to pick a wedge-tailed eagle up twice a day, give it an injection, give it tablets, give it fluids. To do something like that, you have to have, I don't know what it is, it's like it's some kind of understanding. I know this is sounding like woo-woo, but something happens or I would not be able to do what I do. And then when the birds don't need you doing all that anymore, they have amazing instincts. These guys are so smart. Everything changes and it's like, back off or I'll get you. It's really quite extraordinary. The peregrine that I'm working with at the moment, she's, you know, she's allowing me to pick her up. She's allowing me to give her tablets. And it's not just because she's so sick that I can do it. She's perfectly capable of flipping on her back and doing what she needs to do. But she just has this kind of understanding that, okay, just do it and then get lost. So it's just a matter of observation and, again, knowing your bird. I think that's a really important point in that it's a grey area, building bonds with birds, are they habituated, are they imprinted, and understanding your limitations within that space requires experience. So I think if you're experienced, you have an understanding of birds' behaviour and their requirements, then yes, you know, you can undertake these things without causing harm to the bird. But that level of experience is necessary to differentiate what level of bonding is appropriate and what level is harmful to the bird in the long term. Okay, so that is one of the primary differences, though, between caring for a mammal and a raptor is you've got to get them fit. 100% can't be 95%. You need also to have these giant spaces. And you designed and worked on and collaborated on a remarkable training aviary. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I designed them. I first saw them at the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital. This is what they use for getting their falcons fit over there. What I did do was adapt them for this climate here. And they have been, it would seem, very successful. It's, it's also nice to have the birds in an environment that they appear to be fairly comfortable in. I'll watch them on the CCTV. They'll just be sitting there preening. They'll they'll suddenly leave a perch and do a bit of random quartering or a bit of hovering or the peregrines will suddenly start doing their speed work. This is where the CCTV is awesome as well because I'm seeing the birds displaying natural behaviour in rehab um, so it's nice to be able to go okay well that one's doing that her wings look fine now she's not panting everything looks good well I think she's probably ready to go so it's like a jigsaw there are all these pieces that fit into it but I would say too that I think 
that birds are, are one of the most incredibly difficult species to look after just because they're all so different and just because they are predisposed to just dropping dead from stress on its own, as I said. An adult kookaburra is very different to an adult galar, is very different to an adult gangang, is different to a dollar bird, is different to a bird of prey. You've really got to have that bird knowledge to know what that bird needs when it's in care and what it needs to be able to do when it goes. I think people just don't realise that a lot of the problems and the lower success rate with birds is due to perhaps a misunderstanding of those differences between species. I don't know, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. it's just such a diverse group and I think, yeah, yeah I agree, it's the key to successfully rehabilitating these birds is having an understanding of their life history, their ecology and their behaviour. And that's very different across each individual species of bird. A capillary should have the little module on each end. Yeah, biopercolate. Yeah, biopercolate. I just go. Nodule. On both ends, which this one doesn't. Yeah, and it's got such a thick um, membrane. Exactly, so it's very well defined. Yeah. yeah, It could be plant material, but generally... Yeah, I was going to say maybe it's plant spore or yeah, something. Exactly. Um, and then it could be some sort. undiscovered stick uh, insect. It could. Exactly. <laughs> Parasite. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> All right, well, I'll do it again in a couple of days. It's a lifetime's work to get that knowledge up. But, Peg, how did you develop a, an affinity for birds? I initially, when I was a kid, it was reptiles that were my big love, especially turtles and terrapins. I was the youngest licensed person in New South Wales to be able to hold water dragons and geckos and blue tongues. Dad and I used to go around on the weekends and buy up all the ones that were advertised in the magazine that all had stomatitis and stuff from rubbing on because it was legal to do that then. Then I went on to work at Sydney Uni. Then I went on to go away with the Australian volunteers abroad and then I came back from that and decided that perhaps I might like a change of profession but I didn't ever stop doing my wildlife work and mostly it was with possums and gliders and reptiles but both of those sectors are fairly well covered with carers and I was finding that I'd get birds in and I didn't have anyone to give them to. And then one day National Parks gave me a gangang cockatoo that had been seized and he changed my world. He was the bird that showed me just how intelligent and how special and how incredible birds are and how there is just continual learning to be had from them. So, yeah, I went from there. Then I was actually working at the Sydney Cricket Ground in the museum. I got sick. I had to give up my paid job. One of my friends said to me, once you get back on track, I'll send you to the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital so you've got some incentive to try and get better. And eventually I was well enough to go over there and it was just, whoa. <laughs> okay. So this is how you do it. And I was very encouraged by a willingness of all the centres that I visited on the Churchill Fellowship to really work with us and to help us and to share their knowledge with us. And that's just been magnificent. It's like the group of raptor people who all want to work together to better what we're doing and to help us look at our birds and, again, 
just do the absolute best for them. And luckily, national parks are, are very proactive with all this. They're really engaging with my Churchill Fellowship report. And we're, I think we're doing really nicely now. And I have lovely people like Aditi and Shona to work with. And um, again, it's a collaborative thing. And on we roll. Humans have an ambivalent relationship with raptors. Some of us, as I said in my introduction, you know, feel uplifted by seeing them. Some of us have, you know, literally our livelihoods perhaps threatened by them. What can be done to help people understand the role that raptors play and that we perhaps need to adapt to them rather than trying to remove them from our lives? I think it's education, having an understanding about these animals. I think as we develop a society's human-wildlife conflict is just going to become more prevalent because we are encroaching on their space. You know, a lot of wildlife is in urban or peri-urban areas, but it's not all negative. Some wildlife learn to adapt to those situations, some benefit from them. But I think it's in the end, it's about having discussions, having conversations about this conflict, but a lot about educating people about maybe sometimes what are misconceptions about birds of prey especially. So, Wildlife carers are actually on the forefront of, of that, changing those misconceptions really because the data is showing how many calls wildlife carers and rehabilitators take and it's that's the point of contact, isn't it? Absolutely. They're wonderful advocates with the work that they do. A lot of facilities like Peggy's are not just rehabilitation facilities, but education centres. And that connection with community is what wildlife rehabilitators have. A lot of times they're speaking to members of the public that see injured wildlife or even free living wildlife and need a better understanding of how to interact with them or how not to interact with them. So they play a huge role in advocacy of wildlife. I used to give a lot of talks and a lot of them in the local area and I would have farmers who'd come to the talks and just sit there like this because they wanted to have a go at me about the wedgetails taking, you know, all their lambs and it was always tricky. But I now have a lot of farmers in this area who will ring me and tell me they've seen birds of prey. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh, my wedgies are back again. If they have an injured bird of prey, they will actually go to a lot of trouble to bring them here. And yes, you know, they might lose a lamb every now and then. The people who bought the peregrine to me said that they lose chickens to the wedgies all the time. But they understand that's their fault because they've supplied their local wedgie with a supermarket. So yeah, it's it's getting that understanding happening. And How did you turn the farmers around in your area? I, I don't know exactly. I think just by talking to them about the birds and what special creatures they are and relaying some of my experiences. And I'm sure that I haven't turned them all around. I wouldn't make such a grand claim, but you only have to educate that one person. They will then go out and talk to their neighbours and they might go, oh, yeah, I never thought of it like that before. And then the next person and two talk to two more. And, and that's what it's all about. Can you tell me, Peg, about that moment? Like, you, you know, you're very busy. Your time is in very short supply, so I'm grateful for your time now. But there must be moments in your day when you look at one of your charges and it looks back at you and you pause. I don't actually look at them <laughs> like that. <laughs> One thing a bird of prey hates is when you look at it directly 
I find that's a little different when they're in intensive care. It's, it's something you almost need to do because you have to gauge how well they're going. But I do go down there and I get a sense from them and I, and I definitely I have to eyeball them each day even if they are in the big aviaries. It's just a sense of, yes, you're doing well now, but the big joy comes when you actually release them. And a lot of the species will just bolt away and it's like, oh, well, no problem. <laughs> that's, that's all good. But the wedgies in particular have this amazing habit of not going up too high and then just circling around and around and around you. And they are pinpointing you. They are looking at you when they do that. It really is quite extraordinary. And I've actually seen my vet with tears in his eyes the first time he went to a release with a wedgie that we'd worked really hard on that had been caught in a rabbit trap. That bird just went around us for ages and ate, just watching us the whole time. But this is the joy side of what we do and then eventually she went up into the sky and found herself a thermal and off she went like that sort of thing is what makes every second of the horrors and the hardship and the and the bad parts of what we do worthwhile Mm -hmm. because you know that you've made a difference to that bird you've given it that chance that it needed and look Mm -hmm. at it now so why do you think they do that I just, I just, they're just really clocking do. you. They're just I clocking ju- you. And- yeah, I just really do believe they have a sense that we don't have, and I think a part of that is they know. As I said, they know when you're helping them. I agonise over every bird I release. Is this the right time? Is it well enough? Oh, is it going to rain? Oh no, there's wind coming. Oh no, I do that every single time. But once that bird's gone, I just have to go goodbye and then another one comes in. Grateful thanks to Peggy McDonald and Aditi Sriram for their time on that lovely afternoon in the Southern Highlands. This is the Wildlife Heroes podcast, one animal at a time, from the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and supported by the New South Wales Government through its Environmental Trust. There are more details on our website and in our show notes. Have a listen to the other episodes in the series when we visit a bat school, find out about koalas on the urban fringes of Sydney, spend some time with a specialist wildlife vet, and dive deeper into data with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. We've got a first series too about wildlife care and mental health, which is full of rich information and advice. So check that out as well. I'm Gretchen Miller. Bye for now.